0: To the Book of Judges, we're Judges, Chapter 13. Judges 13. Sermon notes are in the bulletin, but if you don't have the bulletin, the ushers are moving through the auditorium, and they'll hand you one of those sermon notes so you can follow along a little bit better. When we uh, come to church, oftentimes children can make a great contribution via their music, via their comments, and sometimes they can be quite challenging in things that they say. This is a true story of a family writing about what happened in their home after the baby dedication of a of a child in their family they said we were driving home from church and the older brother Jason sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car dad asked him three times what was wrong what was wrong finally the little boy replied that preacher said he wanted us all of us kids to be brought up in a Christian home and I just wanted to stay with you guys instead whoa This is now. This is dated. Okay, the preacher was wired for sound, and that's during the time where you had cords instead of the, uh, you know, the remote cords. The preacher was wired for sound with a lapel microphone, and as he preached, he moved briskly about the platform, jerking the microphone cord this way and that as he went. He moved to one side, getting wound up in the cord and nearly tripping over it as he moved to the other side of the platform. After several circles and jerks, the little girl in the third pew leaned towards her mother and said. If he gets loose, will he hurt us? (laughs) The Lord's Prayer. I've been teaching my three-year-old daughter, Caitlin, the Lord's Prayer for several evenings at bedtime. She would repeat after me the lines from the prayer. Finally, she decided to go solo. I listened with pride as she carefully enunciated each word right up to the very end of the prayer. And lead us not into temptation. You know what comes next? Deliver us from you. But deliver us some email. Amen. (laughs) My co-worker's three-year-old son, Reese, he started the prayer this way. Our Father, who does art in heaven, Howard is his name. (laughs) (laughs) A mother was preparing pancakes for her boys. Kevin was five, Ryan is three. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Their mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. If Jesus were sitting here, he would say, Let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus right now. <laughs> yeah. We can learn a lot from kids. You know, a lot of lessons that they come up. Even some of their songs are very important. One of the songs that the kids often sing around here is, Oh, be careful little eyes, what you see, oh be careful little eyes, what you see. Boy, oh boy, is there a text this morning that that is so, so applicable to. It's in Judges 13. We're starting the story here as we go week by week and paragraph by paragraph through Judges. We're coming to that famous character, Samson. And as we start talking about his life, let's just divide it so we get, a, we get to where we want to go this morning then continue this evening. Let's talk about his background. Let's talk about the period of time that Samson was ministering in. We're in Judges 13 and we get a little bit of a details It says this in verse 1. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Here's what we've got just very simple. They rebel once again. Now, if you want to get the full focus of this rebellion, you've got to go back. It's the same period. It's the same group of Jews on the other side of the country who are rebelling. Back in chapter 10, verse 6, it lists out a lot of who they started following after and some of the gods. And in that story of Jephthah that we talked about, talked about last week and in, in the morning and the evening. It's the same thing. Jephthah is on one side of the country. Samson is on the other. And we read what happened and how they turned against the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 6. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They served Balaam, Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and forsake the Lord and served not him. Now, the area of the country that's on the western side of Israel, that is the story where Samson takes place, they again, he states, that they have rebelled and in this time they're going to turn to the gods of the Philistines. And so the Philistines are on the west coast, they're on the Mediterranean coast and they're going to be the ones that God will use to spank the Israelites, to try to get them to come to their senses and to repent. Now this 40 years is going to be one of the longest oppressions of any one of the Gentile nations over Israel. In fact, it lasts 40 years but it, there is their influence and in some of their... Uh, some of their community domination not over a large area but some of their attacks will last another 20 years beyond that up until David becomes the king when finally the Philistines are put in their place and so this time is dealing with the Philistines and give you a little bit of a background that these are seafaring people they are not native to Palestine they actually came from the Aegean Sea area they were Greeks who came down settling new territories they went down into Egypt right around 1200s and they were going to invade northern Egypt. They're repelled by the Egyptians so they in defeat they move up the coast of Palestine and they end up settling in that region and finding five major cities. These cities will keep on showing up in your Old Testament reading of Judges 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. You'll hear about these towns of Gaza and Ashkelon and Gath and Ashdod and Ekron. And so the, the Philistines are going to be there living amongst the Jews settling the territory and it's going to become a problem for a number of times. Now, eventually, their pressure is going to come upon the Jews that they are the first nation in that area to smelt iron. So they have the more powerful weapons. But they not only use the weapons against the Jews, that comes to a point, according to First Samuel, the Jews can't even make their own, um, what we would call the plows, their own their own iron metal uh, that they would make for their farming equipment, the Philistines will dominate it and they will force the Jews into an economic submission. In fact, that's how they do a lot of their attack. That these individuals don't attack the Jews militarily as you read in Samson's story and then in the rest of Judges and First Samuel, the Philistines use more economic attack. They use more of a cultural attack. They are the tribe of the nation that will try to encourage intermarriage more than any other of the Gentile nations. They will try to influence the Jews to adopt their god Dagon and others and it will be effective that they use the economics. In fact it comes to such a point that in the story of, of Samson The Jews that he, the town where he lives in, the Jews will willingly turn over Samson to the Philistines because they don't want any more problems. They have things going well. They are working with the Philistines. Economics are stable. They're not being raided annually. The Philistines are almost their protectors Though they're just whittling down their faith, whittling down their loyalty to the Lord year after year, decade after decade and the Jews are like that proverbial frog in a hot pot. That they're just getting content. And so they will even turn against Samson and say, we don't want you to create any problems. We don't want you to stir up the pot. We want you to be turned over to the Philistines. So their influence is moral. Their, phil- their influence is religious. Their domination is going to become economic. And so that's the time period that we get. And the attitude it is really interesting in Judges chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. In that story of Samson, there is never a time where the Jews will cry to the Lord in repentance and say, deliver us. They don't realize how da- what danger they're in. They're content in what, what is happening around them and the influence of the Philistines is just wearing them down and eroding slowly and so they never cry and say please, please help us to get our full independence. This is the only time in the book of Judges that it doesn't happen. That when God is bringing in a nation to spank them that the people don't respond. In fact the, uh, this is getting close to the period of 1 Samuel. The priesthood is t- terribly corrupt. Eli and his sons are coming to the lead of the priesthood. This is a time period where it even talks about the word of the Lord is rare. And so the people are just putting off spiritual things little by little by little and it's getting worse and worse where they're going. And yet God in the midst of this will raise up Samson because he knows the danger the people are in. Despite the lack of their repentance, he's going to raise up Samson and he says in chapter 13 to Samson's mom that you're going to deliver a son and this son is going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And so God in his mercy is keeping his word. God in his grace is going to turn to them and be faithful to them to his covenant promises though they're not faithful to him. And the Lord is going to show tremendous kindness, tremendous mercy, but this is one of the darkest hours. We thought that Jephthah was bad. Now they go down a step further. Now they're they're in some of the pits where they don't even realize how bad it is and yet God is at work. God is going to move. And what happens is God is going to raise up an individual that you know about. His story is Samson. Of all the judges he gets the most press. And of all the judges he is the individual that is probably the most popular. Stories have been written about him. You have movies being made about him. You have all kinds of clips. And so you all know a little little bit if not a lot about Samson already. But let's go back into the text and let's find out a little bit about this guy. That it says in the text that he was raised to To begin to do the delivery. okay? God even saw from the very beginning. He's not going to have a a fully successful deliverance. But he's going to start the delivery. He's going to start moving Israel. To the point that Israel will become more independent. Where Israel will come back to the Lord. He's going to be the revivalist. that is going to, the intent is, to bring the nation back to the Lord. And so you have the story where God is going to really use him. God blesses him in a bounty of different gifts to enable him to do the job of putting... Putting away the Philistine influence, of making the Jews aware that this is really dangerous, of trying to bring them back to the Lord as far as worship. And God gives him a lot of gifts. In fact, it says in chapter 13, verse 4, the Lord, uh, should be verse 4, I have 24 up there, but it's the idea that the Lord blessed him bountifully. I have the wrong verse, I'm sorry. But it talks about how the Lord is going to use him and bless him abundantly. And so I want to just pause for a second and I want to show you some of the gifts, some of the potential that this guy had. How God gave him special events, special abilities, special circumstances that would influence the Jews, that would catch their attention to say, we want to follow him, we want to do what's right, we want to, we want to put the Lord first. It's a miracle birth. It is one of those rare times in the Bible where there's this woman who is barren, and God is going to intercede and say, you're going to have a miracle baby. And so God comes to the mom, and we read about it in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife is barren, she bear not. The angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and bear not, but you shall conceive and bear a son." Now, therefore, beware, I pray thee. And she gives her some ideas and some rules about it. By the way, just for your information, you read through the text a little bit further, they're going to ask when she tells her husband about this message, the angel reappears to her and the husband. He's going to say, who are you? And he, the, the angel of the Lord will identify himself as wonderful. Well, that's only one person then. The only one person that we read about in Isaiah who is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Mighty Prince, the Everlasting Father. This is an appearance of Jesus talking to this couple and saying, I'm going to give you a miracle son. Now, the reason this is important, okay, is this child has the hand of God upon him from the very beginning. This is a child that God has given for a special mission, a special task, and so he's put this child in this home so as to develop this child's abilities to do that task. I want you to catch this thought. This child's birth story would influence the Jews. It would, have, it would have supposedly positive influence for them to listen to this guy, to realize this guy is somebody from the Lord that we ought to follow, that we ought to listen to his message. So God has given him a unique birth, a miraculous birth. That's very important in helping him to do his ministry. God gives him godly, godly parents. You read the entire account of chapter chapter 13, jumping down verses 3 through 23. The angel appears and says to the wife, says, you're going to have the child, and from this time on, this child is going to be dedicated to me. And because this child is going to be dedicated, there are certain things that this child cannot do. He's going to, have, he's going to be taking the vow of a Nazarite, or one who is separated. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he says, Mom, this is going to be his entire life. In fact, while he's in your womb, you are going to act like he's already supposed to be following this vow. While he's in your room, you have to stay away from the same things that he will stay away from as part of his vow, including the fruit of the vine. None of the wines, none of those types of, of grapefruit juices, those things that were normal in the everyday lo- diet, that was going to be put out of his life. And he says, mom, you have to put that out of your, your life while she, he is in your womb. And so the parents listen to that. They obey that. In fact, when mom talks to the angel, the angel leaves Christ, all of a sudden mom runs to Manoah and says, Manoah, an angel just appeared to me. He never questions her sanity. He doesn't question what she's thinking, if she's drinking, if she's doing anything. He says, well, what did he say? He believes right away. They have conversation, and they are are right away intense on following what they've been told. The angel reappears, and when the angel reappears, Manoah is asking questions, and the angel just basically says, I am wonderful, and reminds them, you have to do what I have told you to do. And then they want to worship. They say, can we prepare a meal? The angel says, no, but go ahead and prepare an offering. And when they prepare the offering... They burn it up, and the angel then arises in the flames and goes to heaven. Manoah's response is really interesting. He realizes they have just seen God Almighty. Look what he says as we go down further in the passage. The angel of the Lord, verse 21, did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. And Manoah knew that that was an angel of the Lord. Manoah said, and watch his his awareness, his spiritual sensitivity. He says, we shall surely die because we have seen God. But the wife said, if the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received the burnt offering and the meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would us at this time have told us such things. And so here's a couple who are sensitive to their relationship. They understand the Old Testament had already said, those who see God die, and they're very very sensitive, and yet they're, they're interacting with each other. She's able to give him some counsel and say, but God has spared our life, and God has a mission for us. That mission is going to be our raising this child. So here you have a godly home. People who are believers, godly home, that they're worshiping the Lord. People who do as the Lord tells them to do, where she and he are going to raise this child. They're going to be very careful, who later on, they're going to say to their son, You need to follow the word of the Lord, even when he's a young man. They're going to be that type of godly parents who are coaching, who are helping, who are guiding their son to do right, even though he won't listen to them. They're individuals who they are giving him a good foundation folk. Here's what Samson had. He had a miraculous birth. God gave him a godly, godly set of parents. A godly home that gave him good training and a sensitivity to the Lord. God gave him something else. Well, Let me pause. I forgot about this. I wanted to share this with you. Some people say it's very, very difficult to have a godly home. And to be in a society where, where you know, all the pressures and all the difficulties come and to rise above evil. In fact, here's an editorial that comes from a newspaper that you're familiar with. You've probably seen online or elsewhere. And they're talking in this editorial about how difficult it is in this day and age that they're, that they're referring to. The world is too big for us. It is hard to do right and resist the evil of our day. Too much is going on, too many crimes, too much violence, too much excitement and temptation. Try as you will, you get behind in the race. It is a strain to keep pace with this world, and still you lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is news seen so rapidly, you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who is in, who is out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature cannot endure much more. It is almost impossible to live a righteous life. Would you agree with that comment? That it's difficult? That comment comes from 1833, okay? Describing the world. My point is this, okay? Has it always been difficult to live for the Lord? Sure. Sure. And so here you have Manoah and his wife, who generations and eons ago, they were living in a really corrupt area, but they lived for the Lord. They tried to re- raise their son to honor the Lord. They gave him the truth, and here he is, Samson, blessed with godly, godly parents. He's also blessed in this regard. God gave him a special ministry. God gave him a special service. God calls him from early on, before he's even conceived, God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a special task, a special position. He gives him the Nazarite position. It is described in numbers. It is called separated. That's the word Nazarite in the uh, the ancient language. And here he is, God says, I have separated you for a particular task. Now understand that vow of the Nazarite was something that anybody could take of the Jewish nation. It would be a temporary. It could be weeks. It could be months that they could do it. But for Samson, it is going to be lifelong. It started while he's in the womb. His mother had to abide by the rules and regulations. And there was three of them, according to the book of Numbers, that somebody who took this vow, during that period that they are following this vow, where they are consecrated to the Lord in a special way, there are three things they had to observe. One is they could have no fruit of the vine. Never, never. Not to deal with it at all, stay away from it totally. And again, that was their normal beverage. So this was taking a big step. Number two, they don't cut their hair. They're not supposed to cut their hair at all. Though the Bible says that long hair is a shame, in this case, in this vow, they were supposed to leave their hair grow out so as to identify that this person, this in particular this Jewish man, is really consecrated and for this period of time he is dedicated wholly unto the Lord. Number, th- number three, they were not to touch dead bodies. You know in your everyday life, you're going to deal with living in a land where there's animals and there's, you're dealing with all kinds of, of flocks. You're going to touch dead critters. But the Nazarite was to stay away from them totally, not to touch, touch carcasses, not to touch dead bodies, in fact, not to touch even human bodies of family members during that period of time, as indication that, hey, I'm totally dedicated to the Lord, and, uh, and I'm giving up my bonds, my binds, my relationships here in this life, and so it was very stringent that the vow of the Nazarite, that they were to abide by this during that period of time. This way, God is saying, Samson, I have set you aside, I'm giving you you godly parents to raise you this way. I've given you a miracle birth. I want you to be an illustration to all the Jews that you're going to minister to, that you're going to lead. I want you to be an illustration of complete dedication. They're going to be able to look at you at any time and see by your long hair that you are one who is dedicated to me in your life, that you are serving me, that you're obligated. So I'm giving you this type of a commission, a special task, And I'm going to enable you to do that special task by giving you the Holy Spirit as needed. And you'll find it's repeated several times that says the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The word is rushed, as in rush into somebody and kind of give them a push. And so here the Holy Spirit, and again, it's different in the Old Testament than today. Ever since the book of, of Pentecost, the book of uh, the, the, um, the Feast of Pentecost, the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on believers, every single one of them, and stays. But in the Old Testament, during that time, the Holy Spirit would only come upon some believers and at certain times and he could leave and the Holy Spirit would come upon those who God says I want to give them great enablement great ability so they could do a special task well several times the Holy Spirit is, is recorded as coming upon Samson to enable him to fulfill this total dedication so here he is miracle birth godly parents given a special ministry he's privileged of God he's given the Holy Spirit he's given extraordinary strength He's given this phenomenal strength. Now, I think this. I think this is more than a natural strength that he developed by going to the gym. It is something very, very unique and miraculous. The reason I say that is, we'll look at it tonight a little bit more, but when Delilah has him in her tent, she keeps on saying, what is the secret to your strength? Well, if he were this huge monstrosity physique of a guy, you wouldn't ask what the secret is. His is something that, that they can't see physically. Now, I'm sure that he had bone structure. I'm sure he had some muscles. Otherwise, you know, he may not have been able to even, you know, I, I don't think he was a weakling. But at the same time, I don't think he's this picture of you, the Hulk, you know, huge that you would just look and say it's there. Somewhere he's given abnormal strength. Abnormal and it's not, don't get confused, that his strength is because he had long hair. Therefore, if you have long hair, you're stronger than others. Okay, That's not the case. His strength is tied to the Holy Spirit. His long hair has to do with his physical, visible dedication to the Lord. When he loses his long hair, he loses his strength because he stopped his dedication to the Lord. Now, so here he is, this guy who's given this extraordinary strength. In fact, multiple stories. You just walk through the different stories you have in chapter 14, talking about him and his life. All of a sudden you jump down in chapter 14, verse 5. It says, then Samson went down, he and his father and mom, to Timnath. Timnath is a village about four or five miles away from their hometown. It's a Philistine town. It goes on, and says, They went down to Timnath and came to the vineyards. Behold, a young lion roared against him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. He rents this lion, as you would tear apart a small, small sheep and a small animal. And he had nothing in his hands. He didn't tell his mom and dad. So somewhere in this trip, they get separated. And he goes down and he's attacked by this lion. And by the way, the lion is in attack mode. This isn't some snaggletooth that's laying by the roadside that's all feeble and weak, you know, that's been hit by a car and he's going to put out of its misery. He's going to be attacked. And he's going to attack back with his bare hands against this wild beast and tear it apart. Extraordinary strength. Phenomenal strength. He goes out later on in the story, and according to verse 19, to, to, to settle a bet that he's made, he goes out and he attacks 30 different men. And he takes on one against 30 and beats them, abnormal strength. Phenomenal strength. Phenomenal strength, and the story goes on. That in anger, what he does is he's going to go and get revenge upon the Philistines. And we read down in chapter 15, verse 4. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands. That, th- those aren't tame animals. By the way, I-, I think the foxes that I've seen in my life, they run pretty fast. Is that a fair assessment? Samson's got to get 300 of them. So not only is he strong... He's fast. He's fast, and he captures these. And I I, 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 just, I try to picture the picture of how do you hold wild foxes, tie them together, and then put a fire, a torch between their tails, and all the while, you're, you're trying to keep them calm. This guy's got 10 arms, okay? He's just, it's, it's phenomenal what he can do. It's an amazing situation that he is able to, to do this type of a feat, capture 300, I'd be tuckered out just chasing one. And he's capturing 300 and then he lets it torch the entire area and destroys all the Philistines' crops. This is going to put them in economic jeopardy and so it's a means that God uses against the Philistines. But then on top of that, He goes into battle right after that. And when he goes into battle, chapter 15, the Philistines are coming after him. They send soldiers because he's just ruined a lot of their crops. And so they send armed soldiers to capture him. And we read in chapter 15, down in verse 14, when he comes to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, the Spirit of the Lord. So they're going to attack him. The Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon him, and the ropes, the cords that were upon his arms became as flax. They just melted away as if burned with fire. And his hands were loosed from off his hands, he had been tied up, been tied tight by his fellow villagers, villagers who were turning him over to the Philistines. And he had said to them, the only thing, I, I'll, you know, I'll let you tie me up and deliver me, but don't you attack me. And they said, we'll do that. We just want you out of our hair because you're making problems for us. Uh, with the Philistines, and we don't want problems with them. We want to live in harmony with them. That's again how bad the Jews were at this point. And so they turn uh, Samson over. And when he gets into the midst of the Philistines that they turned over, there's this group that it's at least a thousand, if not more, that are come armed soldiers. So they they know this guy's got some extra ability and power. So they send a thousand plus to arrest him. And they come and attack him. They want to get rid of him. He's burned up all their crops. They want to get revenge on him. And when they attack, the passage goes on and it says that he found a new jawbone of an ass, of a donkey that had died, and put forth his hand, took it, and he slew a thousand men. That he wins this battle. Folks, you got to think this through. He's against people in armor, he's against people who have iron weapons. The best of the day, he's against a military group, a cohort that is organized and he beats them. One man against a thousand. That's phenomenal. Now, it wouldn't be bad if he were one man in a tank, but he wasn't. And he had no phenomenal weapons. He had no laser gun or a a laser sword. He didn't have anything special, just a bone. And he attacks and he wins, he defeats. This is phenomenal. Phenomenal strength. And then you have what happens 20 years later. The chapter ends in chapter 15, and you have 20 years between chapter 15 and chapter 16. And we read in chapter 16, Samson goes to Gaza, another Philistine city, and he visits a harlot there, and it's told the Gazites, the people of that town, that Samson is in their city. They circle him, and they lay in wait all night at the gate of the city, waiting for Samson to leave the harlot, and they were quiet all night. So they got this ambush ready. And in the morning, when it is day, we're going to kill him. When he comes out the gate, we're going to slay him. And so how many they have, I don't know. But remember, the last time they fought with him, a thousand wasn't enough. So here he is at midnight, he gets up and he takes, goes to the city gate where they're laying in ambush and he takes the gate off the hinges. Oh, I take that back. That's not right. He takes the hinges and the gate and the post, the foundation posts. He picks them up and he walks out of town with the gates of the city. Can you imagine those hundreds of Gazites sitting there watching their front door being taken off? And he's walking away with it. And they say, you attack first. No, you go. Not as, nobody, nobody stops him. Why? What do you think is the feeling amongst the Philistines? Fear. Because he might drop that gate on you. Okay, by the way, just, just to give you an idea. This is a huge, this isn't like, you know, take the door off the auditorium. We're talking from archaeological evidence, we're talking that we're something that's like eight to 10,000 pounds. This is big stuff. And by the way, just to give you a comparison, that's what he's walking away with. That, that's the idea, that he goes out in our parking lot, picks up a large pickup, and starts walking down the street. Would you bother with that dude? Okay, let me add to it. Let me add to it to just give you an idea. He's going to carry it 35 miles. Oh, by the way, it's uphill both ways. Okay. It's a hilly territory. Okay? He this this is one one super strength guy. God's giving him the all he needs to do a task for the Lord. He's given him answered prayer. You read in his story, in fact, you only read twice where he prays. But when he prays in chapter 15, it's after that battle with the thousand, where he defeats the thousand. He says, God, I need water. I need water. God hears him. God gives him the water. At the very end of his life, he prays again God, restore my strength so I can bring down the temple. God hears him. So here's a guy, godly home, a special ministry. God gives to him supernatural strength to do the job. God gives to him answered prayers. God gives him all the gifts, the abilities to lead Israel out of the influence of the Philistines and to return to worship with God. God's given him visible Visible appearance that he is dedicated to the Lord. God has singled this guy out to say, you're the one to be the leader. You're the one that people can look at. They can be amazed by what's in your life and by your dedication to me, they will be drawn to me. And God is doing a phenomenal work in the sense of providing Samson all that he needs to do the job to get them to turn to repentance. And he doesn't do it. Oh yeah, he beats up a thousand. Oh yeah, he burns their crops. Oh yeah, he walks away with their front door. We know that. We know that he is used at times, but he never accomplishes the entire task. He never fulfills what God could have done through him. Why is that? Why is it that he ends up at the very end, he ends up a prisoner to the Philistines? Why is it that he ends up blinded? Why is it he ends up serving them for an extended period of time instead of serving the Lord? Why is it that none of the Jews come to a point of revival because of his influence? God gave him everything he needed to be an influence, but he doesn't. He doesn't fulfill the task. Why is it? Why is it that he ends up in our Bibles that we look at him and we say, here's a guy who's gifted, who's talented, and yet... The moral of his story is, wow, he blew it. His problems. If we can summarize his problems, let's just summarize it this way. Samson's problem was Samson. The problem was him. The problem in his life is, is basically, I'm going to define it with two statements. That I think as you dwell upon, as you cogitate over them, as you meditate upon, these are really, really challenging observations about why he failed. It's this, number one. He was outwardly strong, but inwardly weak. What I mean by that is this. He had no self-control. His passions were what dominated him. He was controlled by desire, not by dedication. His flesh was in charge, not his spirit. Outwardly strong, inwardly weak. I think secondly is this. Outwardly separated outwardly showing I am dedicated to the Lord. You can see by my hair, the long hair, that I am really, you can see that, that I'm not involved with drinking wine like everybody else is drinking wine. You can see that I don't touch that. You can see by the fact that I stay away from dead bodies. If you followed me, I, I'm one of those individuals that would not touch and deal with, with that. You can look at me and you can see that I'm separated, but inwardly there's no sanctification. In other words, his dedication to God went skin deep as all. It wasn't in his heart. He, he, was, he was outwardly showing that he was dedicated to God, but inwardly, he was not as dedicated. He did not have the same compass that would say, I need to stay away from things that God would be displeased with. And so he's this externalist. He's this one who has great, great visibility to the crowd. He could be in modern 2018. He'd be an individual who would go to church, carry his Bible, listen to the right music or or dress the right way by other people's standards and what they thought was real dedication. But inwardly, when he's alone, he's a different person. When he's by himself, he would dabble in things he ought not to dabble in. When he's alone, he would would entertain, get involved when he's away from the others who gather for worship. He would end up getting with the wrong crowd. He's an individual who does not adopt inwardly a real spirit of holiness. Outwardly, everybody would say, oh, he's the guy. Inwardly, he's not holy. let Let me prove my point here. Go to chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Watch what is developed in his life story. In chapter 14, verses 1-3, he is old enough. God is blessing him. God is raising him up now, as we read at the end of chapter 13, that all of a sudden, he is an individual that God is moving him. God is giving him the Spirit. He's ready to do his job. Chapter 14, he ends up going to visit Timnath. He's, He's wandering down to the Philistine village. While he gets to the Philistine village, according to verses 1, 2, and 3, he sees a Philistine girl that he sees from a distance. That means he's looking at her physical features, her beauty, her physique. That's what's attracting him. And he goes back to mom and dad, and he says, Mom and dad, I found a woman that I want to marry. And mom and dad's response to him is, "Uh, um," verse 3, isn't there a woman from amongst the Jews? Or among all our people that you can take as your wife rather than go to the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, get her for me. Here's an individual that is going, he's moving not by principle, but by purely what he sees with his eyes. He wants his parents to work with this customary. Mom and Dad, you arrange the dowry. You take care of the thing and make arrangements so I can marry this girl. Go talk to her parents and make the, make the arrangements. And his parents say, this isn't right. This goes against the word of God. We have been told in the Old Testament for the Jews at that time, they are not to marry the Canaanites. They are not to marry the Gentiles. He doesn't listen. I don't care. She stirs me up. She arouses me. She is attractive to me. I don't care what the word says. I don't care what you say. His problem? His problem is real simple. His outward dedication, though it's there, he demonstrates that he is dominated by his inward passions. I'm outwardly dedicated, but I'm going to follow what I want, what I feel like. I don't care what the word of God says. I'm attracted. She's alluring. And, I, and I'm going to get her for my wife. And, and mom and dad, I'm telling you and giving you orders rather than you listening. By the way, I remind you that in this time period, young people who do, were demanding and disobedient and disrespectful, they could be stoned. And I'm not talking with drugs. I'm talking they could be physically stoned. This guy is all of a sudden turning to the point where he might be outwardly, outwardly do, you know, towing the line, but inwardly, he hasn't adopted the spirit of God to say to him, I'm going to live a holy life. I want to be dedicated to the Lord. He hasn't adopted the line that says, wait a minute, I need to control what I look at. I need to control where, where my gaze is. I need to control my passions. He's not there. He's outwardly strong, inwardly weak. Outwardly dedicated, inwardly there's no dedication. Do you want to see it multiplied again? Do you want to see another instance, the same thing? Follow along the story. Dad and mom go to make the arrangements. Chapter 5, Samson, we read already, they goes down with mom and dad into going to Timnath and they came to the vineyards of Timnath and so they arrive there. Okay? Because Samson says, she pleases me. And so let's make the wedding arrangement. Mom and dad have no choice, apparently, and so they're going. And he stops at the vineyards of Timnath. I have one question. Why is he stopping at vineyards? Can I, that may seem unreasonable to you, but what has he been told he stays away from? Anything to deal with the vine. Anything to deal with the vine. But here he parks himself at a vineyard. Why is he going to the place that's forbidden? All he's doing is putting himself in a tempting spot. So there he is, he's there, okay? The lion attacks him, he kills the lion, he rents the lion, tears him in two. He doesn't tell mom and dad what had happened. But then it says later on, they go back another time, okay, And it says in verse 8, he's going to go back. They made the arrangements. Now he's getting ready for the wedding. So verse 8, after a time, he returns to take her as his bride. He turns aside at that same spot going to Timnath where the lion's carcass was. And it says, behold, there's a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. What has he said in his dedication? He is not to touch dead things. He's supposed to stay away from them. So what he does is he's by himself, he's headed toward to, to the wedding area, and he stops, and the second time he sees the lion carcass and honey you know, that's great, that's good, but it's inside the carcass. He collects the honey, he enjoys the honey, he's violating his vows, but nobody's there to see. So it's okay. Right? So it, and then what's the passage say? He takes the honey and gives it to who? He gives it to his parents, who now are eating from an unclean animal. He's just defiled mom and dad, by the way, without them knowing about it. What do you have here? His problem? Samson's the problem. When alone, he dabbles with violating God's law. When alone, he thinks he's permitted to do things that are otherwise bad when other people are around. As if it's only bad if mom and dad see me. It's only bad if my wife or husband know about it. It's only bad if people at church know about it. Otherwise, it's okay for me to do something that I, that's forbidden in Scripture. And so here he is as an individual who's putting himself in situations that are going to create more and more problems for him. He is, what do we say, outwardly strong, inwardly weak. He lacks moral, spiritual character. He is outwardly separated, but not inwardly. So that when he can be by himself, he thinks it's okay to cuss and curse and to carry on. When he, he would be a modern day example would be, when I'm by myself, then I can give in to the passions and view the pornography that's on the internet. And it's not that bad because nobody knows about it. He's that type of person that says, hey, listen, I can get away with foul language, foul stories. I can get away with drunkenness because nobody at church knows about it. Nobody knows that, even though the word of God says I'm not supposed to do those things. Even though nobody knows that I lie and cheat on my finances, it's okay because nobody knows outwardly coming and portraying that we're worshiping, that we're doing right, but inwardly the character is not there. The sanctification is not there inside. That's the Samson. The Samson goes to his wedding. Do you want to see what happens here? He's getting married to the Philistine, contrary to what God has said, down in verse 10. So his father went down unto the woman, and Samson there made a feast, for so used the young men to do. The feast, by the way, the Hebrew word is an interesting word. It has to do, without exception, the word used here has to do with drunken festivities. Okay? So he's delivering the wine to other people. Whoa, time out. He's supposed to stay away from the wine. He's hosting a seven-day party. That's becoming a drunken a drunken event. So again, what he's doing in this occasion is he's violating things. Then, in the middle of the celebration, he's emboldened, well not in the middle, in the early part of the celebration, he's emboldened to gamble with the people who are there. Okay? let's do a little bit of gambling. I'm going to make money off of you. So Samson says to them, verse 12, I will put forth a riddle unto you. If you can declare it to me, give me the answer in seven days and find it out. Then I will give you, 30 of you, I will give you really special garments know, 30 changes of garments. And again, remember in Bible days, clothes were considered, you know, part of your savings program. But if you cannot declare it to me, you owe me 30 different changes of garments. Whatever he's going to do, a 30 of them, I don't know. But, you know, one for each day of the month. And they said to him, put forth the riddle. Riddle. He gives them the riddle. It came to pass, verse 15, on the seventh day, they still can't figure it out. And so they go to his wife and they say to his, his new bride, they say entice your husband that he may declare unto us the riddle otherwise we're going to kill you we're going to burn down your house and we're going to kill you they're serious about not losing the bet I mean this, this is the type of people that Samson is hanging around does that tell you about where he's dipping and in Samson's wife she verse 16 she does the woman thing to get her way did you see it verse 16 what does she turn on She turns on the tears. She wept before him. You hate me. You don't love me. You put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and you didn't tell me. You're keeping secrets. He said, hey, I have not told it to my dad nor my mother. Should I tell it to you? I'm going to cry some more. And she wept before him how many days? Oh, my word. Okay woman, get over it, okay. It came to pass on the seventh day that he tells her because she lay sore upon him the perpetual drop, 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 drop. She wore him down. This is torture. Drop, drop. The water torture of the tears. And he tells her and she goes and tells the riddle to her people. The men in the city come to him and they say, we, we solved it. You all know, the strong, strength is in the lion, the sweet is the honey in the lion. And so he said, "Don't now look at the end of verse 18. He's upset. He knows they got this answer from his wife. I just don't know the way he responds here in calling his wife. Okay. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. I can't imagine any guy saying that about his wife, you know. Mad or not, that's just fighting words. Amen, ladies? <laughs> yeah. He's ticked. He's upset. She's tricked him. By the way, in defense of her, these are her relatives, okay? And they have threatened to do what? To kill her. By the way, do you know what they end up doing to her? They kill her. You read a few more verses, they burn her father's house and everybody in it. Talk about friends. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's the group that Samson's hanging around with. And so what happens is, they, he, tell, they, he gives the riddle. Samson, what's the problem? What's the problem here? Okay, there's so many. Why is he marrying a Philistine? Why is he partying with the Philistines? Why is he having a drunken fest feast with the Philistines? His, his vows said, you're to deliver the people from them. You're supposed to lead my people away and they're becoming your bosom buddies. You're supposed to be separated. That's what you dedicated your life. That's what I called you to do. You're not separated. You're serving wine to these guys when you're not supposed to be near the wine. You're in the midst of these guys who are tricking you, who are endangering your life. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a saying, you can't fix stupid. Stupid. Samson is stupid. Here he is in the midst of this. He's going to end up ruining, ruining his own testimony before his own people to the point that just a few verses later, they would rather have the Philistines than him. And he's their judge. Why? He's losing all influence. He's losing all credibility. He's losing the crowd that he's supposed to lead. In fact, if they follow him, there will be more in bed with the Philistines. I meant that as a superlative or as a... Literally, it ends up true. He ends up in bed again with the Philistines. Literally. The guy is just compromise after compromise and losing his testimony. He is outwardly strong, but inwardly weak. He cannot stand against the crowd he cannot he cannot live a holy life when he's alone he's not an individual to say these 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 commitments that god has asked of me this this dil- illustration of dedication it's too hard for me because it goes against my passion it goes against my pride it goes against my partying attitude and, and it would be too strict for me but this is what god called him to do his dedication wanes He's a guy who is separated outwardly, but inwardly he doesn't have spiritual values. Oh, God uses him, but how much more could God have done with this guy? It's <laughs> a reading story. Oliver Cromwell, protector of, of England, you know, in the Middle Ages, he he writes about a true story of a circus visiting the court of England, and in this in this circus group there is a guy who is the animal handler. He has had a boa constrictor since it was seven inches long. For years and years and years, and he's raised it. And he uses it as part of his act. And so he's in the court of England, and they have all the the celebrities, the nobility is there, and he writes about this instance happening where this guy is there demonstrating as part of the show the boa constrictor comes out of its cage and starts wrapping its way. Now it's many years that he's had it, so it's full size and growing, and starts winding its way up his body. And the crowd sitting there are ooing and awing, and they're amazed by him just standing there, and this is part of his show, that the boa constrictor gets around him, and then they take it off, and he's fine. But as they're all cheering and watching and going ooh and awe that the snake is covering up, the snake gets up to the top of the head, and there's no movement. All of a sudden, they all get you know deafening quiet. Cromwell describes it that they're quiet, and then they hear the unmistakable sound of bones breaking. So people rush in. The other circus performers rush in, but it's too late. His pet snake killed the performer. He thought he had it under control. He thought everything was okay. He had done it before, never a problem. That's Samson. That is Samson playing with fire. That Samson at this moment he is looking and he is saying wait a minute I've gotten away with stuff and God has graciously used me and yet how much more could he have done for the Lord? How many of those Jews could he have delivered and brought to real faith? How many of the the problems that show up in the next generation and the difficulties that happen to Samuel, to David, to Saul because of Samson's lack of following through with what he should have done? In fact, it gets worse, I'll show you tonight how the Philistines, they end up mocking God because they never see the power of God displayed the way it was supposed to be displayed. Oh, I just remembered another time. Do you remember the other character from the Philistines who really mocks God and thinks he is more powerful? Goliath. Because Samson didn't use his abilities, his powers. In fact, he just got worse and worse in his life until he's captured and he's killed by the Philistines. God prophetically said he'll begin to do some deliverance. Well, it was very minor, it was more of a travesty. So much potential. Oh, you can look through the ranks of, of sports. You find individuals who, when he first comes in, he's the rookie of the year. He's going to be your Hall of Fame pitcher. They just talked about how great he was, but within a few years, the drugs, the addiction, the alcohol ruined his career. We can put multiple different people up here that that would be the case. So much potential. What do we take away from the story to this point? There's more that we'll share tonight. What do we take away? Let me, let me give you some practical warnings from this text. Number one is do this. This is, the, this is a positive. Recognize the parallels in potential between you and Samson. I'm not trying to, to stretch scripture, but there are some parallels that are very clear between you and me and Samson. If we are born again, we too have experienced a miracle birth that is only by the grace of God. We have been born by the Spirit of God. We have become part of the family of God. So that in a spiritual birth sense, this miracle birth, we are on our way to heaven. God has graciously brought us into the spiritual realm of eternity to live with him by making us his child. It's not what we have done. But if we believe, then he enables us to become his children by his mercy, by his grace if you have been born again, if you have called upon Christ to be your Savior, repented of your sin, you have experienced a miracle birth. Whether you be 8, whether you be 18, whether you be 80, you have been born by the Spirit of God and enjoy a relationship that is unique, that is very, very special with God Almighty. What a privilege you have Where he says that that you and I are, uh, are part of those who are on the narrow way where most don't walk by coming to faith in Christ. That's an honor. That's a privilege to be called a child of God. It is a high, high eternal delight to know you're going to heaven. By the way, when you got saved, God put a call upon your life. God had a plan for your life. Part of that call is that He has predestinated you to be conformed to the image of His Son, according to Romans 8. He has put that calling upon your life that you are supposed to become holy, godly, and serve Him. He calls you to a separated, sanctified life. It's not the same as the Nazarite vow, but it is in modern day a life of holiness. In fact, how does he say this time and again in the New Testament? As he who has called you is holy, so you be holy in your conduct, in all that you do. Because it is written, be holy as I am holy. What does he say in Ephesians? He says, be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in the love of Christ, but fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not be named among us. As is fitting for the saints. It's appropriate that they don't say that we're involved in that kind of stuff. Neither filthiness, filthiness is dirty stories. Nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting for believers. That's what the word says. We are called to this type of life where we love not the world neither. The things that are in the world, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And he describes it, just what Samson went through. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father. You and I are to be different. We have been called. There's a spiritual parallel. You have been given many, many spiritual blessings. How does Paul write about it in Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us who are born again with all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He has given us so very much that according to his divine power, he has given to us all things that will help us to live a life that is godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be able to live, partake, enjoy the divine nature. The holy nature, the holy life, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has called us to this type of a life. This is what God wants from us. And then he gives us his spirit permanently. He gives us prayer any moment. He gives us his word to strengthen us, to comfort us. He gives us a body of believers. He gives us blessing after blessing, all the potentials we need to live a life of holiness. You have that spiritual potential. You are not unlike Samson, that God has graced you and blessed you to live and given you it all, but take advantage of it. Do you remember this story? Do you remember this individual from back in the early 1900s, Hetty Green? When she passed away, she left millions in today's market, in her estate. But she was also called the garbage lady because during her life, she would raid garbage cans for food, for clothing. In fact, she lived in a a huge house, but she wouldn't heat it because it cost too much. Every day she ate oatmeal because it was the cheapest, but she wouldn't heat it because it cost too much to heat the oatmeal. Her son, who was a teenager living in that home, ended up cutting himself, having an infection. She did not take him to the doctor until she could find a free clinic. Because doctors cost too much. Though she had, in her day and age, she had millions at hand. She wouldn't use it. Her son lost his leg because of the infection. She is called America's greatest miser. She didn't take advantage of the wealth that she had. You have been given tremendous wealth by the Spirit of God. You have been given phenomenal Abilities and opportunities by the Holy God of heaven. Do you take advantage of it? Do you pray? Do you look in His Word? Do you rely upon the Spirit? You have all this potential. Do you use it? Like Samson, remember this God wants to use you in many unique ways. He has a ministry for you. He has something for you to, to lead, for you to deliver others around you from the bondage, spiritual bondage of damnation, from sin, from temptation. You have kids and grandkids that you're supposed to be leading. God has a ministry for you. God has a plan for you, but you can hinder it. You, like Samson, can hinder God's plan. You can hinder God's usefulness for, in your life. Through your life, you can be like Samson, outwardly strong, but inwardly extremely weak. You and me, we can be like Samson, where on the outside we, we fit the role, but inwardly we dabble. We live on the edge. We compromise holiness. Can, can it be real, real practical? Don't let your eyes wander where they shouldn't go. Do you remember that song we started with? Well, be careful little eyes, what you see. This should be your motto when it comes to getting on your computer. This should be your motto when you're watching TV programs. That you don't let your eyes wander. That you realize that like Samson, if you let it wander and say, I'm big, I'm bad, I can handle it. You're toying with a boa constrictor of temptation. That can end up ruining your life. Can I add to it something else? Don't allow your passions to control you. If you are letting the inner passions control you, you will be governed by everything outside of you that comes down the pike. If you are governed by the the thoughts, when you see different visuals, different pictures, and you allow that to govern your your attitude, your actions, my word, oh word, you're going to have problems all the time because all around us, there is all kinds of temptation. If you are going to have your, your, your attitude governed by what others do to you, by the externals, oh my, you're, you're in a life of hurt. Oh, you know, when somebody gets me mad, I just blow up. You're going to be forever blowing up. You and I have to come to a point where we realize what scripture says. Like a city that is broken into and without walls, that's the person that cannot control his spirit. How does he say it here? When he's writing as a dad to young his sons, who are in their teen years, listen to me, my children. Beware of that woman who is the wicked woman. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. She has cast down many a man who are slain by her. They were strong, they thought. But they got into the allurement. They got into the sexual escapades. Her house is a way to hell. What, what about temper? Who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Who rules his spirit is better who, than he who captures the city. The Bible talks about self-control. It talks about holy living. And it warns us in the New Testament, do, not, do you not know this, that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, he says, you are slaves to that, that situation. Whether sin or righteousness. If you yield and yield and yield, it will take more and more and more of your control of your life. Let's make another observation. Don't put yourself in temptation's pathways, avoid all appearances of evil. Instead, what you need to do is flee the youthful lust, Follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace. Then he says as well, in 1 Corinthians, this is the context of the passage that we frequently bring about where we talk about we're bought with the price, glorify God in our body. The very beginning of that whole paragraph is flee fornication. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God? Stay away! from that which is drawing and pulling you get off the internet when there's the dirty smut avoid the programs avoid letting yourself be caught in a rage and anger avoid the idea of letting the letting the idea of just running and buying and losing control of your finances be careful be careful number 4 remember that like Samson if you refuse to change things will only get worse over time the damage will increase He has written for an example for you and I as a warning. Take heed to the warning. Do not end up like him, like the malnourished Samson. You don't want to end up there. You don't want to end up a a, a ruined story. Hey, let me close with this. It's no longer number one. It was a few years back. But do you know what hit song, pop song, was the most frequently recorded prior to 2004 or 2005 by other artists? I find this very, very interesting. It's a song by Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I did it my way. Why is it that so many people liked that song? It's descriptive, isn't it? Of lifestyle. It's descriptive of attitude, doing things... My way. We are sitting here right now before a holy God. Before a God who is almighty. And this God is the one who says, you need to do it my way, not your way. So I implore you this morning, pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. Pray for God to examine your heart so that you live a life that is pleasing to him. That is honoring to him and avoid the tragedy that Samson experienced.